I, I want you to open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And today we're going to be finishing the second part of a two-part series. Six keys for reaching the harvest. How many of you know that God has an intention for us to be the harvesters? To be the laborers in the harvest field? I've often said this, it's not original to me, but uh, I believe it's true, that, that the church is God's plan A, and that He doesn't have a plan B. We're the harvesters. God's called us into the harvest field. And so today, as was last Sunday, this is a message to the church. So if you're not really a, a believer or, or maybe you're just kind of on the fence and you're not really sure, uh, this is a great time to say, what is the church all about? Uh, this is what we're about. This is what God's called us to be about. And so I want us to look at the text uh, together in Matthew. And I had you turn to chapter 10, but I want you to look at the last few verses in chapter 9. Verse 35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Father, as we dive into this word again today, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds. Lord, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying and hearts to respond in obedience. God, we want to receive your word today. Let it bring life and strength to our souls. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 You can be seated this morning for the last time. But if you want to jump up and say amen, I just want you to know it's not going to scare me a bit. I, as, we, as we get into this word, we're going to kind of start there where we ended last week. And, and I want to move forward into chapter 10. But last week I gave you the first three keys that I believe are essential parts of us receiving and reaching the harvest. Really reaching is a better word because we're to be proactive. How many of you remember that story of, of Zacchaeus? You know, the original wee man, the short little guy who couldn't see over the crowd to find Jesus. And the Bible says, what did he do? He climbed up in a sycamore tree. The Lord he wanted to see. Y'all remember the song from Kids Church? And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, <laughs> you know you want to sing, right? Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house. Can I just tell you that evangelism doesn't usually happen like that? It's a great story, but usually people that are far from God are not going out on a limb to get to God. That's not the way it usually happens. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we got here this morning to rehearse with the worship team and there was a line of lost people waiting for us to open the doors? You know, as if we were like about to release the new iPhone or something. They're just waiting, like just... Just let me in. I can't, I can't wait. I want to see Jesus. No, that's not really the way it usually works. It's awesome when it does. But in most cases, it's up to us to go out and to reach lost people. That's what Jesus was talking about 
in this conversation that he that he has with his disciples, Jesus himself sees the people. In verse 36, we just read, says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And the first word that I gave you last week was passion. It's a key ingredient. If we're going to be a people who reach the lost, we have to have a passion. Jesus had a passion and his passion was to do the will of the father. Now, everybody here probably has a passion. I mean, your your passion might be crocheting. I don't know if you're passionate about anything or not. But when you're passionate about something, you find time to do it. Right? I mean, we all have the same 24 hours a day. We all deal with the same uh, struggles in our time and, and trying to make time for things. But I've found in my own life that the things that I'm passionate about, those things I have time for. It's the other things that I have to make time for. And Jesus was passionate about the will of God. So much so that in John chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. In other words, Jesus was saying, This is what fuels me. This, this is my protein bar. I mean, this is what, this is what gives me the unction and the drive to keep going even when I'm tired, even when I had to skip a meal. See, for some of us, our passion is eating. And so if it came down to evangelism or a meal, I'm sorry, but the lost are just going to have to stay lost until after lunch. Because my passion is food. And the disciples were saying, Jesus, you need something to eat. And he said, my food is to do the will of God. He was so driven by it. In fact, in the very next verse, you don't have to turn there, but in John 34, 35, he said this. He said, don't you have a saying? Don't you guys have a saying that says it's still four months until harvest? But I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe. For harvest. Jesus was saying the fields are white. That's the way it reads in the King James Version or the the, uh, New King James or actually most translations except the NIV. I really don't like the NIV on this verse because it says the fields are ripe for harvest. But I think a better translation is the fields are white for harvest. And the reason I think that's better is because I'd heard it said that, that a, a farmer was responding to a message about this and the preacher was pleading that the, the fields are white for harvest. That means it's harvest time. And then after the service, the farmer came up to me and said, Pastor, I, I gotta, I gotta correct you a little bit there. If the fields are white for harvest, he said, that, that doesn't mean it's harvest time. That means it's past harvest time and you're about to lose the harvest if you don't do something quickly. And so there's an urgency in what Jesus was saying. He was saying, listen, it's time now. You're going to miss your moment. The window's closing. Today is the day. This is the opportunity for the harvest. Don't say there's four months until harvest. You know, a lot of times in the church, we can do that unintentionally. You know, we can anticipate seasons like Christmas season or, or Easter or, or a big event like the one that we have going on this Friday. And we can say harvest season is in five days or in two months or harvest season is in five months. Or, and we can kind of look at opportunities and praise God for those opportunities. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And God doesn't need an event on our calendar to cause an event in somebody's heart. Amen. 
God wants to move in people's lives. And Jesus was telling his disciples, hey, open your eyes. Look at the opportunity. It's right here in front of us. He looked for it all the time because he had passion. The second thing that we talked about last week, and you can write these down if you weren't here for it. After passion is, is people. The Bible says this. We just read verse 37. It says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's no shortage of lost people. I, I don't know how many. We, we could maybe pack 200 people in here, uh, in this room. I don't know that they would want to stay too long, but we could probably pack 200 in here. But if you packed out this church and every other church in this community, we'd still have over half of the community without a seat to sit in. There's no shortage of lost people. All around us, all around us, there are people that need to hear the gospel that need to know somebody that can lead them to Jesus. And Jesus said, we need people to get engaged in the work. So ask the Lord of the harvest is the next thing he said. And that's the third point, prayer. Prayer. And I told you last Sunday that prayer is not preliminary. It's not what we do before we minister. And prayer is just not something to indicate that the ministry is over and it's time to go home. Prayer is ministry. And if I can ask you to do anything this week, especially if you're here and you say, you know what, my schedule doesn't allow me to, to be at the Fall Fest meeting on Wednesday and, and I can't be out there Friday night to, to help you out. There is something that you can do that is absolutely critical to the success of every spiritual endeavor that we have. That is prayer. Pray. Saturate uh, our outreach event with prayer. Saturate this community with prayer. Prayer. Believe that God is going to give open doors for us to love people. We want to have a prayer station out here on Friday night that just says prayer. So that if anyone would come and say, you know what, I need somebody to pray for me. Then they can have someone pray for them right then in that moment. We don't have to always preach a sermon because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is drawing people's hearts to the Father. And so when we pray... We come into agreement with the work that the Spirit of God is already doing in people's lives. And as we pray, the Holy Spirit is working. We need to be a people of prayer. Now look with me in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. The Bible says this, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Now look at the next uh, three verses. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, if you're uh, not a student of the word, if you're not a Bible scholar, if you haven't studied these guys out, you didn't learn anything except their names just now. And I just want to point out to you that that's really the only part that was important that you learned about these guys at that moment. I mean, sure, we can, we can study the, the, the whole canon of Scripture in the New Testament and, and we can learn a little bit more about these guys and, and we learn more about them as they go. But ultimately, all you need to know about these 12 men is that they were chosen. They were called. 
They had no special gifts, no special talent, no, no background uh, in, in teaching or preaching or uh, no formal biblical education that, that made them uh, a special or elite to any others. But Jesus chose these men. And if you're a note taker, the first thing I want to tell you today, the fourth key ingredient to being a people that reach the harvest is power. That's what we need. We need power if we're going to reach the lost, if we're going to be effective. It's his power that gives us the potential. As you look at this list of of men that here served with Jesus, nothing special about them. But verse one communicates why they were so effective. Because he called them, it says, the disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every sickness and disease. He gave them authority. He gave them power. Can I just tell you this morning that we have to remind ourselves and we have to remember that the power of God is mandatory for the effectiveness of of the church. We won't turn to it today in the word, but I was just thinking this week about a couple of times when the disciples tried to do the will of God without the power of God. One of them was in Mark chapter 9. The story goes that the disciples were trying to drive an evil spirit out of a young boy. You remember Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and when he came down there was a crowd around the disciples. And he's going, what, what's all this commotion about? And they, the, man, the boy's father said to him, they're trying to, to cast this devil out of my son. It, the description in the Bible sounds like he was having epileptic seizures. The boy would fall on the floor and he would shake and he would foam at the mouth. But it was more than just a physical condition because the father said he's done this from childhood. And oftentimes the spirit has thrown him into the fire or thrown him into the water. So this was more than just some medical condition. There was a spirit that had attached itself to this boy. And he came, the father came to the disciples and said, can you help? And they couldn't do anything about it. And so Jesus rebuked them in that moment for, for being unbelieving and for lacking faith. And then he prayed over the boy and he, he cast the devil out of that child. And he was delivered in that moment. There was something in that moment that Jesus had that they didn't have. But it's not something that he wouldn't give them. Jesus promised that the resources that he had, the miracles that he performed, when we look through the Bible and we want to see these amazing things and then chalk it up as, well, yeah, but he was Jesus. Yeah, but he was the Son of God. No, no, no. The reality is Jesus said, these works that I have done, greater works shall you do. Because I go to the Father. What does God going to the, Jesus going to the Father have to do with us doing greater works? Because Jesus said, unless I go to the Father, the Spirit, the Counselor, the Comforter cannot come. And what did He come to do? He came to give us power. He came to give us divine resources so that we could do supernatural exploits, things that are not natural, not common, not something that we could reproduce on our own ability, but something that God wants to do through us by the Holy Spirit. So when it comes to us reaching the lost, when it comes to us doing evangelism, when it comes to the church fulfilling the purpose of the church, We have to remember 
that we cannot do it. We are not called to do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. And for those of us that have been in the church for a long time, it's really important that we remember that. Because we can tend to think that we've figured it out after a while. That we know how to do it. And, and you know, we, we do know how to do a lot of things. And praise God for experience and, and, and lessons that we've learned. And we've learned how to be more efficient and, and more effective. But ultimately, ultimately, hear this. No one, no man, no woman can save a person. I can't save your soul today. I can't save anyone. Jesus is the Savior. The Spirit of God has to work in the hearts of men. And so there's nothing that we can accomplish of eternal value outside of the Holy Spirit. So we need need power. And that's what Jesus gave them on that day. He gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. You know, there's another story of, of a different group of disciples in Acts chapter 19 who tried to do the work of the ministry without a personal infilling of the power of God. Now now listen to this, because there's a lot of people that have been around the church, and they're familiar with the church, and they might mistakenly think, because I'm familiar with the things of God, because I've witnessed the power of God, that I have the power. This is what happened. There were seven sons of one man, who saw someone possessed of the devil, a person who was manifesting a a demon. We don't have a definition. I don't know what the guy did, that they knew he was possessed of the devil. But they went, and they tried to rebuke that devil in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached about. That's what they said. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached about. You know what that devil said to them? He said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the Bible says in Acts 19 that that demon-possessed man jumped on them, all seven of them, gave them such a beating, the Bible says they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Can you imagine? Here's these men saying, we're going to cast this devil out because Paul knows Jesus. I want to tell you, you have no authority over the plans and the schemes of the enemy because your parents know Jesus. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't have grandchildren. We're sons and daughters. You don't have authority. You can't take authority over the plans and the schemes of the devil because you know somebody that knows Jesus. Well, uh, in in the name of Jesus, who my pastor preaches about. No, no, we have authority in Jesus' name. He's given us power. And we have to depend on that and cling to it and say, God, I I need your power. I need your resources. Look with me in the book of Acts quickly. Would you turn there? Hold your spot in Matthew. We'll be back there. But look in Acts chapter 1. I want you to see a word here in Acts chapter 1. Here's what he says to him. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
you'll receive power. That's the word I had you write down. Power. We need that. Now, that word in the original language is dunamis. It's the word that we get dynamite from. And so, you would think that what the Bible is saying is God wants to give us explosive power. And sometimes the Spirit of God manifests in that way. It's powerful. It's sudden. It's dynamic. But I believe there's some people who have kind of pushed back from receiving the power of God, receiving the Holy Spirit. Because you, you don't want a, a Holy Spirit dirty bomb to go off in your life. Like you, you power, explosion. I, I don't know if I want that. I, I like control. I like, let me give you a better definition of that word dunamis. What it really is saying is divine capability. After the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive divine capability. That's what, that's what he's saying. He's saying that God is going to enable you to do the things that he's called you to do. He's going to enable you. He's going to make you capable. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's, that's why we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. As believers, not as a one-time experience, not as some spiritual experience that we can kind of check off the list and say, oh, I've been there, I've, I've seen that, I've done that. Yeah, I was in a service one time, they experienced that. No, the Holy Spirit gives us divine capability to do the things that He's called us to do. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the electrical power that comes into your house from the transformer. When it comes into your house, it's general in its flow. It, it, it's just general. It's just power. It's general as it flows in. But in its outflow, it's specific. In other words, when, when, the, when you plug in your, your iPhone charger, it, it charges a battery. If you plug in a toaster, you get toast. You plug in your television, you get a nice picture. So the power coming in is, is generic. It's, it, it's for all purposes. But the way it flows out is very specific. If you plug in your blow dryer, you get dry hair. And that's the way it is with the Holy Spirit. That He wants to pour His Spirit out. But the way He functions in your life is specific. He gives you divine capability. Which means if you're a teacher with the power of the Holy Spirit, you teach better. If you're a preacher, you're going to preach better. If you're a person that operates in gifts of mercy and compassion, you're going to be more sensitive to those needs and you're going to have a greater level of ability to operate in that gifting. It's not just God exploding His presence and messing up a church service. That's not what Pentecost is about. Pentecost is about the Holy Spirit giving you the ability, the capability to flow in and through the unique gifting and the design that God has for your life. So that you can function at a full capacity to do the things that he's called you to do. There's a verse in Ephesians 5, verse 18. Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit and listen to this verse. He says, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, that's an interesting verse because he's not even talking about alcohol before that verse. 
And he just kind of throws this statement in there in the middle of what he's saying. And he says, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So more than anything, I believe Paul is just trying to draw a parallel out of our everyday lives. And here's what I believe he's saying. You can get inspired a couple different ways. I've seen people that felt inspired after drinking alcohol. All of a sudden, they thought they were ten times stronger than they really are. You ever seen those folks? They felt inspired. You know, they thought they were a lot more attractive than they were too. You know, all of a sudden they felt inspired. You know, they're going to make their move. They're going to pick a fight. They're gonna, why? They feel inspired. They feel puffed up. And Paul says, "Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit." Because there's a, there's a false sense of strength and confidence and security that comes with uh, someone that, that goes the way of alcohol. But there's a true and an authentic power and a resource that makes you better than you could ever be on your own when you tap into the Spirit of God. And so when you're, when you're full of the Spirit of God, and not just spirits, you're going to have a better and a greater capacity to do everything that God has called you to do. He said when you're drunk with wine, it leads to debauchery. It leads to carnality. It leads to poor judgment. And yet when we're full of the Spirit of God, we have clarity of mind. That's why Paul said to Timothy, he said, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. When we're full of the Spirit, we have those things. We don't have fear in our hearts. We have power. We have love. We have clear thinking, rational thinking. We have understanding, soundness and wholeness in our minds. Why? Because we're filled with the Spirit of God. He said this, after the Holy Spirit comes on you, Acts 1.8, after the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll be my witnesses. I just want to challenge you with this thought that the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something that we should just seek as a one-time experience, but that we should continue to be just don't answer this out loud, but just consider if you're, you're a, a believer in Jesus and maybe you've experienced the Holy Spirit. Do you re- remember that moment? And if you do, let me ask you to consider when's the last time that I was filled? Because this is not like water baptism. Water baptism is just a, an outward testimony. We don't come and get baptized in water every Sunday. We don't need to get baptized in water every Sunday. But the reality is this. We are leaky vessels. And when the Spirit of God fills us, we leak. We run dry. That's why Paul said that we ought to continually be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It's in, it's in the continual, active, present tense. Be being filled. Continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we need His power to flow in our lives. And if we live in that place of power, we're going to have divine capability to do everything that God's called us to do. The fifth thing, the, the fifth ingredient is this. It's in verse 7 of chapter 10 of Matthew. It's preaching. Preaching. Look at what Jesus said. Look at verse 5 with me. He said, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles 
or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Can I just tell you, this is, this is where reaching the harvest becomes very practical. This is where it fleshes out. I mean, we can say we want to be the people and we want to be passionate and we want to pray. But at this moment, you know, we want to receive the power. All those things are great. But at this moment, preaching, this is the moment where we actually say, okay, God, you can use me to do more than just uh, pray and ask for your power and, and ask for you to use us. God, I'm actually willing at this moment to open my mouth and be your mouthpiece. He said, preach. When you go, preach this message. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 9 and 2. I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. That was the Apostle Paul speaking. Can I just tell you today, you don't have to be a preacher in the sense that I'm fulfilling right now to preach the message. You don't have to stand in front of an audience. And if you don't do those things and never will do those things, it also doesn't mean that you're exempt from this challenge. That we are to preach the message. Paul said, I've become all things to all people. I'll use any means necessary. Whatever it takes. I'm willing to do that. If the end result is somebody coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then I'm, I'm wide open to any idea. Whether it's something that's directly spiritual, like leading a small group or, or, or inviting some, some uh, other stay-at-home moms in your neighborhood to, to come over and to have a, a devotional together or, or a prayer group together, or like some of our students are doing, to, to actually start a campus club uh, on your middle school campus and, and say, we want God to use us, I'll become all things for them, means I'll become a small group leader. I'll become a prayer group leader on my middle school campus. Maybe for you it means, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll cook soup. I'll make homemade soup so that people in our community can come and be blessed. I, I'll, I'll do that. I'll become a chef this week. I'll come and serve. I'll receive tickets. I'll pass out hot dogs or hamburgers or I'll work an inflatable bounce house. If, if, if that's what it takes to just love people, I'm not above that. I'm not above any job. I don't have to just stand here on the platform or function as my capacity as a teacher or a worship leader, whatever it is. All of us have a calling to preach the message. And there's hundreds of ways of doing it. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 2, God was calling Moses to be the leader of the people of Israel. And Moses, like many of us, was timid. He was holding back. And the Bible says this in Exodus chapter 4, verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? And he said, it's a staff. And many of you know the story. God used that staff, that shepherd's crook. He used that to demonstrate his power and to lead the people of Israel. God used something as insignificant as a shepherd's staff. Now, some people would mistakenly read a story like that and think, man, you know what? There's something about being a shepherd. There's something about uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I probably need to get me a stick. If I get me a big stick, then God can use me to do great things. Well, let me just tell you, the only reason that God used that stick is because Moses was a shepherd. That was his job. And if he had been a plumber 
And God would have said, what's that in your hand? And he would have said, a plunger. Then he would have led the people out of Egypt with a plunger. Nothing that makes my gifting or my occupation or your gifting or your occupation, whatever it is in your hand, nothing that makes it more capable. It's the power of God that adds the capability to our preaching, to our loving, to our leading. What's that in your hand? That's, that's, the, that's the question. What is that in your hand? What do you have that you can give to me that I can use? You remember the story of David in 1 Samuel 17? He went out to visit his brothers on the battlefield. While he was out there, he heard about this Philistine Goliath and how he had been taunting the people of God and mocking Jehovah God. And David just, he, he enlists right there. He says, I will go out and I will take him down. Sign me up. And the moment that King Saul decides to allow him to do it, he does something that many of us have allowed to happen in our lives. He says, okay, if you're going to go out and fight him, you got to get properly fitted. And he tries to put his armor on him. You remember that? He takes his tunic and he puts it on David. Now, the, the, the Bible doesn't say much uh, about David's physique, except that he was, he was ruddy and handsome. I don't know how tall he was, but we do know about Saul. The Bible says that tall was head and shoulders higher than everybody else. So even if David was average height, Saul's armor was not going to fit him. Because Saul was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And yet, Saul tries to get David to put his tunic on and then to put his armor on. And the Bible said David tried to walk around and move in them because he wasn't used to them. Now, I genuinely believe that if David had gone out and tried to fight Goliath, relying on the armor and the sword of Saul, he would have lost. Because his strength was not in the armor. He only knew two things for sure. He knew that that giant has to come down today. He is defying the, the Lord and he has to come down. The second thing he knew is, I know how to throw stones really good. That's what I'm good at. And Saul, with his good intentions, tried to tell him, David, if God's going to use you, it's going to have to be in this way. Can I just challenge you? Don't, don't let yourself be molded into Saul's armor. Don't allow somebody else to say, well, if God's going to use you, you got to do this, you got to do that. And, and, and all these extra things that really have nothing to do with the plan and purpose of God in your life and everything to do with their limited perspective on how God can work. Can I just be honest with you? I, I had a hard time even coming into the ministry because I was trying to fit myself into, quote unquote, Saul's armor. Many of you know, because he was here last Sunday, that my dad is, is a great preacher. My grandfather is a preacher as well. And my older brother is also a preacher. And so when I was growing up, I was looking at different people and the way that they did it. And I recognized that, you know what, I'm not exactly like them. And because I don't fit the way they do it, maybe I'm not called. And I believe that happens all the time in the body of Christ. There are men and women here today. God has, it's not a question of has God called you. He saved you and he enlisted you. And he wants to empower you to preach the word of God in your own unique way. But a lot of times we, we try to force ourselves into the mold of Saul's armor. David knew two things. He knew that that giant has to come down and that I know how to throw stones. 
And he said, I can't, I can't use this stuff. I can't use this. And he took it all off. He took his little bag and he put five stones in it. The Bible says he ran to the battlefield. He put that sling in the stone and he began to whirl it around. And while all of the Israel army is hiding in their tents going, man, look how big that giant is. David's swinging a stone saying, look how big that forehead is. And he just, whew, bam, hits him right between the eyes. Falls the giant. He said, this is what I do. You, you might fight him that way, but this is what I do. This is how God has gifted me. He's enabled me. And there's something that God's enabled you to do. He's gifted you to do it. So don't let getting yourself in somebody else's armor keep you from doing it. God's called us to preach the message. And he's asking the question, what's in your hand? What tools have I given you? What resources have I given you? And can I, let me just say this, and, I, and we're going we're gonna to close here in a minute. But don't say this. Don't. Don't say, well, I'm just going to let my lifestyle be my witness. The Bible doesn't say the kindness of Christians is the power of God unto salvation. That's not what Romans 1.16 says. What does it say? It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Nobody's getting saved because you're nice. Nobody's getting saved because you hold the door for folks or because you, I mean, that's good. And, and the Bible does say that the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. And so certainly God doesn't want to save people in spite of your attitude. But don't say my witness is just, uh, you know, I, I just try to let my, I just let my life speak for itself. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, not watching. If faith comes by hearing and you're letting your life speak for itself, nobody's getting saved. Nobody's hearing the gospel. They're watching you. But there has to be a moment. And I don't want to take away from positive witness. We need to live the life first. We need to show people that we care. We don't want to just come up and thump them with a Bible and say, listen to what I have to say. But there has to be a moment where we actually preach, where we share. And I'm using that word in a very broad sense. It could just be a simple conversation. There has to be a moment where we give an adequate witness of our faith. That we just tell people what Jesus has done for you. Just what has he done for you? And we testify to the work of God in our lives. That's what the word says. Jesus empowered them to go out and to preach. Let me just give you the last thing and, and we'll end with this. The sixth thing is provision. Provision. It's a key ingredient. There in Matthew chapter 10, the word says in verse 9, do not get any gold or silver or copper or take with you, uh, to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. Now, now Jesus could have said, guys, you're about to go out and preach this message, so you need to prepare. You need to pack a change of socks. You need to make sure you got plenty of money. 
You need to make sure your, your sword is sharp in case you're running into any conflict. I mean, he could have done all that. And we could have said, hey, we want to be a, a passionate people that are prayed up, that are full of the power of God, ready to preach the message. And the sixth point would have been preparation. And, and I would preach well, preparation, be prepared. But that's not what he said. In fact, he said the very opposite. He said, I don't want you to take anything with you. Don't take any extra socks. Don't take an extra coat. Don't pack some extra money in your bag. And I believe, I don't believe that Jesus was telling us not to be prepared, not to plan. But there was something that he was trying to teach them about the harvest. And that's that God shall supply for every need. He will provide when we commit our hearts in ourselves to the harvest. The Bible says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. So he's communicating to them that where God guides, God provides. He's going to meet the need. And he's getting them to, to trust him. And can I, can I tell you, we need to have that kind of faith when it comes to the things that we do for the Lord, when it comes to the commitments that we make in the area of missions. To not hold back and say, well, you know, we'll reach out if, you know, if, if the funds come up, if we get some, if we get some extra money this month, maybe we'll reach out. No, we operate by faith. We hear the word of the Lord and then we move out by faith, trusting that God is faithful. That God is going to provide where he guides. I, and I believe there's a second lesson in, in this that Jesus is trying to communicate because in verse 11, In verse 11, he says this, he says, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. Stay at their house until you leave. I I think what Jesus was also trying to communicate is the obligation that is on those that receive the good news. Now, Now, let me just talk to the church for a minute. Jesus said, don't take anything with you. You're going to go, you're going to preach with power and with authority. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to cast out devils in my name. You're going to do these things. And, and when you go, find some worthy person and stay in their house until you leave. Now, who's a worthy person? How, how do they decide who's, who's a worthy person to, to stay with? The worthy person is the one that, that is receptive to the gospel. As they're out there in the streets and in the open air preaching and in the synagogue and, and they're declaring the truth about Jesus, there's people that respond to it. They embrace the gospel. They open their hearts to it and, and they take them in and they say, you know what, we're, we're going to help you. We're going we're gonna to help fund this thing. And I believe Jesus was communicating the emphasis, the priority that is on the worthy person, the worthy people, the worthy church to meet the financial obligations. That's what he's telling them. He said, you don't need to take anything with you for this. I'm going to meet your needs by worthy people, by those that respond and open their hearts to the gospel. And I just, I just want to encourage you with this word that there's always, it's always important that we remember, that we remember the responsibility that we have as the people of God, to respond to worthy workers. Whether they're pastors, evangelists, missionaries. The Bible says that the worker is worthy. And so we, we bless them. Now this is easy for me to say because if you were here last Sunday, you know that the church blessed my family 
for Pastor Appreciation Day. And I just I want to say again how much I, I appreciate that. The, many of you, you know, gave us cards and, uh, and, and even uh, wrote checks or gave in, a, in an offering just, just to bless us. And, and, and so you can just kind of nod your head in agreement and feel good about this. This is not a, a statement of, of judgment, but it's a reminder to us. And I touched on this as we received the offering that so long as we are faithful as the people of God, every need will be met. The evangelists can still travel and, and stir the churches and, and, and meet needs. And, and the missionary can go to foreign soils. And, and the pastor can devote himself to the work of the ministry. So long as the people continue to understand that the worker is worthy. And that's what Jesus was communicating. He was saying, look, your needs are going to be met. You're going to find worthy people. And stay there. They're going to meet your needs. The Bible speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I just want to read a couple of verses to you. Chapter 9, verse 9, it says this. Paul says, For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. And then he says, Is it really the oxen that God is concerned with? Surely, he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And then look down at verse 13. Paul says this, he says, Do you not know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? What? uh, And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So he's, he's outlining again this principle that God has created a means for provision. For the work of the ministry, specifically the fivefold ministry, God's gift to the churches. It's Ephesians chapter 4. God's gift to the churches of pastors, uh, evangelists, apostles, prophets, teachers. That he's provided resources to meet the needs. But for all of us, here's the reality that, that he's communicating to us. That God is faithful to supply. That God will give the provision. That his provision is absolutely critical. That without it, we, we can't do this. Without God meeting the needs, we can't do what he's called us to do. So we understand that the provision comes from him. Hudson Taylor was a great missionary that pioneered a hard work in China. And he said said this word. He said, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. There's no need for faith unless there's an element of risk. So I believe God is challenging us as a people to do some things that require risk. To do things bigger than even what we feel personally capable of. But to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to give us capability to do things that we've never even thought or imagined that we could do. That God wants to meet us at a place of obedience and make provision for us to do those things. Why? Because he's the Lord of the harvest. And because the fields are white. And because we can't say four more months and then the harvest. 
He's called us to recognize the moment that we have today. And to make up our minds to say, God, you can use me. You can use me. I'll, I'll be that people that you're looking for. I'll be the answer to the prayer. Lord, send workers into the harvest field. And I'll do it not because, because I'm talented at this. I have no more qualifications than those fishermen did when you found them in Galilee. But because I'm willing, I believe you'll equip me with your power. And God, I'll be not just an example, but I'll be a voice. I'll be a voice. You say, I don't know what to say. Tell your story. Tell your story. Be a voice. And trust that God is going to supply and provide for every need.